Incorporating AI into your business can be a delicate balance between speed and intelligence. That's why you might want to consider the Claude 3 family models from Anthropic for your enterprise AI. Haiku is their light and fast model, Opus is their most powerful model capable of high order thinking, and Sonnet is the best combination of both speed and intelligence. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. It's on! Hi, everyone, from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is Gordon Gecko, and I'm here to tell you greed is good. Just kidding. It's not really that good, but it's not bad sometimes for some people. This is On with Kara Swisher, and I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm Naima Reza. And Gordon Gecko, of course, is Michael Douglas's character from the film Wall Street, mm-hmm. the hit 1987 film and 2010 sequel by our guest today, Oliver Stone. 2010 was not so good, but the, not so bueno. the original was fantastic. It's just an amazing movie. It was sort of so reflective of the times. And Gordon Gecko had a phone that I had, too. Oh, you had the Gordon Gecko phone. Yeah, the big giant one. Stone, of course, meant Wall Street to be a critique of capitalism. Yeah. But you know what happened instead? People loved Gordon Gecko. They wanted to be him. More mm-hmm. bros were inspired to become stockbrokers. And yeah. apparently very much dismayed Stone. Yeah, it probably did. I mean, I mean, they tried to make uh, Charlie Sheen the hero. You know, he was sort of taken in by Gordon Gecko. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Gordon Gecko was so compelling and so fascinating that he, you know, he's a billionaire today, like a zillionaire today. He did just oh, fine. Gordon Gecko yeah. isn't working. Yeah, isn't working. <laughs> anyway, he probably is because he liked it all. But um, there was a lot of things he said, which actually, if you go back and watch it, it has a lot of resonance to changes in the economy that he was completely correct about many things. Well, in a minute, we're about to get to Stone, who has directed more than 30 films, including mm-hmm. Born on the Fourth of July, Great Timely, film. JFK, Snowden. Mm-hmm. He also wrote Scarface. But before we get there, it is finally, after Fourth of July starts, hot movie summer. Supposedly. Which is like hot girl summer, but darker and <laughs> less making out. Yeah, it's a, it's a look. The movie season has not started off well. Flash has been a disaster for Warner Brothers. The new um, multiverse Spider Man has done well, um, but a lot of them are not performing. You have to be a big opener, like Mission Impossible, which is opening, which I will be there in the front row seat for the first day. Um, and maybe the Barbie movie. I'll be interested to see how that does widely. Um, but it's really hard to to open a movie. I think Tom Cruise is the only one who's really delivered for Hollywood in terms of theatrical experiences. And then Oppenheimer. 
Oppenheimer is the one that I'm very excited about. Yes, it is a hard time. Actually, I had friends who just are about to premiere a new film called Joyride, which is a raunchy rated R comedy. Are you excited for it? Oh, very much. I'll see that. I'm on a plane. I'll be honest with you. No, don't. You got to see it in a theater. So Mm -hmm. my friends wrote it, Cherry Chiva Pravodumrong and Teresa Shao. And it was directed by our friend Adele Lim, who co-wrote Crazy Rich Asians. Great cast. Amazing cast. Stephanie Hsu, Ashley Park. Ashley Park. I love Ashley Park. I know. I was out with all of them the other night. Did you have a Joyride? Uh, no, but great cast, great film. There's some really fun movies. I'll I'll see it in the theater, even though I'm probably going to see it on a plane, but okay. You see it twice, Kara. Also, you like to watch films on planes about like the plane going down because you're, you know, intense like yeah, that. Yeah, I do. But. I do. I put them on my thing and there they are. And I, I always get looked askance at by, uh, you know, the neighbors and the stewards and stuff. And I'm always like, what? I'm excited for these movies, especially Mission Impossible. Let's be clear. That's my number one. Yes, Mission Impossible, Joyride, Oppenheimer, and Barbie. These are all four I will see in theaters. Yeah, I'll be interested to see how Oppenheimer does because it's a complex and difficult movie about nuclear energy, which is nuclear bombs, excuse me, and what we're talking about today is nuclear energy. Yes, it's the Chris Nolan film about the theoretical physicist who helped develop the world's first nuclear weapons. And our guest today, Oliver Stone, has also made a film about nuclear. It is a mm-hmm. documentary not quite the Chris Nolan's scripted feature. Mm-hmm. But it, the film starts by asking actually a very good question, which is, why don't we have more nuclear energy in a world where renewable sources of energy like solar and wind are not reliable, they're variable, and more reliable sources like oil and coal are so dirty. Mm-hmm. And damaging. And damaging. Why don't we build more nuclear plants? Yeah. A lot of people are now rethinking, it, including Bill Gates and many others, um, have changed their minds because the, the actual facts are it's not as dangerous as people think it is. Uh, there haven't been as many deaths. And the impact of climate change uh, because of fossil fuels, including methane, including natural gas, all of them is really devastating. So we have to be rethinking uh, the use of safe nuclear energy and some of the innovations in it are really interesting. I've talked to Mm -hmm. a lot of companies that are working on fusion and nuclear energy um, in ways that are really compelling. Bill Gates being uh, first and foremost in terms of investing in it. Of course, those small and modular reactors, which we'll talk about with Oliver Stone. But it is so important because people think, oh, well, you know, I'll get an electric vehicle. But it's only as good as what you plug the thing into to Mm -hmm. charge it. And so there are parts of China, for example, where driving an electric car is actually reportedly worse for the environment because you're Mm -hmm. using so much coal to power that car and charge Mm -hmm. it up. You might as well drive a gas-powered car at Mm -hmm. some point. And at times this film, which we've both watched, veers... I mean, it's he, a polemic. It's a polemic. It's a polemic. It's a polemic. He's taken a stand. And mm-hmm. it's an interesting argument. And he makes a good one. But it's a polemic. And a lot of people who are against nuclear energy probably haven't done as much research as they should, I have to say. Yes. Um, because I have been convinced by many, many, many people that a lot of the um, scare tactics, which are based on nuclear bombs, mm-hmm. um, which are of course, a nuclear bomb can ruin your day, but... Um, You're saying the conflation between nuclear energy and nuclear weaponry. Yep. Yeah, there are cultural and cost barriers mm-hmm. to kind of pushing through nuclear, which I think he's hoping that this will make a dent the way Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth mm-hmm. made a dent, right, yep. In, yep. in climate change. And it certainly toggles between kind of constructing a case, being a polemic, and then just a flat-out ad for nuclear at times. You know, most of his movies are polemics, let's be clear. Yes, you let's know, be clear. every one of them. Let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Because he said most of his films are designed to expose a lie, which they're, they often are controversial. Yeah. They sometimes veer towards conspiratorial. Fear. They, they run right <laughs> into it. They rush, they drive their, drive their electric vehicle powered by nuclear right into it. <laughs> 
<laughs> and the, the key one for that is the 1991 film JFK, which mm-hmm. starred Kevin Costner, Tommy Lee Jones, Kevin Bacon. Did you see that film? Oh, yeah, I enjoyed it. Kevin Costner just ate up the screen. It was so enjoyable to watch. You know, I think it's absolutely important to raise what happened to John F. Kennedy. I'm not a, a grassy knoll kind of person, yes. but it certainly was the investigation was not done in the way that it should have been. Um, and and it, and and there are links between, the you know, the mob, Cuba, Russia. There's just, it's enough to, should have been investigated in a better way. For people who have not seen this film, it dramatizes a conspiracy theory that the CIA was behind the assassination of JFK. And Walter Cronkite, who actually broke the news of JFK's assassination, he said the film was a, quote, mismatch of fabrications and paranoid fantasies. Yeah, that's the problem. He went way too far down that avenue. It got nominated for eight Oscars and won two, though. Yeah, yeah I know. It was <laughs> so, a great film. Yes. Watching his films, they're so thick. They're so full of stuff. Whether, mm-hmm. I, you know, Born on the Fourth of July is one of the I think, speaking of Tom Cruise, too, one of the finest movies. Um, So gripping. By the way, you know that, like Tom Cruise, Oliver Stone dabbled in Scientology? Oh, I didn't know that. For a month. It's in Going Clear. It's in Larry Wright's book. Interesting. I actually read a biography of him, but it ended in Platoon. Platoon, yeah. He's really made some amazing movies. He made that four-hour documentary with Putin, which was based on 20-plus hours of Putin. You know, I had a real problem with natural-born killers, but it has stuck with me for when I saw it, I don't know, 20 years ago. What was your problem with natural-born killers? It was so upsetting. It was so upsetting to watch just evil. Uh, It was really disturbing. It was like a Bonnie and Clyde on steroids. So his mind is a little bent, I would say. <laughs> he's very polarizing. And one of the things, it's he attracts a certain crowd. He's not Alex Jones, but no. he attracts a certain crowd that Certainly probably does. likes. There's probably some Venn yeah. diagram overlap of fans. And Christian, Christian Castro-Russell, one of our producers on the mm-hmm. team, actually went out to cover one of the first ever or the first ever Flat Earth International Conference no, in 2017. And he found a lot of stone stands there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting talent he has. But he definitely, the Putin thing, that nice guy. Like, that was a... Yeah, some have called him a Putin apologist. That yeah, well, he documentary is. is a love letter to mm, Yes, Putin. it is. And it is. This is something that, obviously, we're going to ask Stone about. You didn't want to mm-hmm. start there. You wanted to build no. up to it. Yes, I did. Because I do think this documentary deserves attention. And I think he is obviously a very gifted filmmaker. Um, you know, he's got a dose of crazy you know he's a very talented <laughs> yes, filmmaker and as is, someone who i produce and and write and direct documentary i i'm very much in awe of his talents for film 100 percent. and we should note going into this that stone is not a nuclear expert he co-wrote no. the film with his scientist joshua goldstein and based on a book that goldstein had written with another scientist but he is a filmmaker who has studied this subject and has a particular point of view so you know a lot of what he's putting forward is his opinion um and we'll see the the timing of the film couldn't be better the u.s (laughs) is now rethinking nuclear as you were saying a lot of innovation coming into it what's ironic is that the person most beleaguered by conspiracy theories these days is bill gates who is of course someone who has been pushing what Stone wants to push. Which is nuclear. Nuclear, yeah, yeah. which is among other things, but yes. uh, that's one of his big things. So uh, it's kind of funny. And of course, it is funny. Bill Gates did not put a chip in your vaccine, anybody. He didn't. No, he didn't. Yeah. They'll, they'll probably be buddies. We'll see. I don't, I don't know. We'll <laughs> see. Uh, anyways, let's see if this is Oliver Stone's Al Gore moment. Yes. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back with Stone.
This episode is brought to you by On Investing, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Each week, hosts Liz Ann Saunders, Schwab's Chief Investment Strategist, and Kathy Jones, Schwab's Chief Fixed Income Strategist, analyze economic developments and bring context to conversations around equities, fixed income, the economy, and more. Join Kathy, Liz Ann, and their guests as they share insights on what might be moving the markets and why, as well as what indicators they are watching for signs of change. They'll also answer investor questions on everything from how sectors are evolving to what the bond markets are telling us, to where to look for opportunities and considerations for your portfolio. You can download the latest episode of On Investing and subscribe so you never miss an episode at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for On with Kara Swisher comes from NerdWallet. You don't have to be a genius to start making better financial decisions today. It's not that sexy, but piling up lots of little monetary victories today can yield some pretty significant rewards down the line. The tricky part is knowing where to start. NerdWallet can help. Their financial experts have helped countless people find new ways to maximize every dollar they earn. Now the team is helping folks get more from every dollar they spend. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credits side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering up to 10 times the points on every dollar you charge. Their expert team of nerds did the work reviewing top credit cards so you can trust that you have the smartest one for future you. If I had better rewards right now, I would probably travel to Hawaii and be sitting on a beach and not talking into this microphone right now. I would be enjoying a Mai Tai, possibly swimming, doubtful I would be surfing, but I would spend them all there. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, welcome. We're going to talk about the arc of your work a little later, but I want to start that you've made over 30 films. You've told stories about Vietnam War, Greed on Wall Street, uh, figures like JFK, Nixon, Bush, Edward Snowden, Vladimir Putin, and now nuclear energy and climate change. Um, What's the through line of your career and what you're trying to build here with this body of work across complicated, often controversial topics. Well, one doesn't think about it in terms of uh, when you're a young person, you don't say, I'm going to, I'm going to be this at the end of my life. You just do it as you go. And, and you, the issues that concern you often concern the rest of the world. I mean, I am been very conscious of the news when I was raised that way in New York City by my father, who was conscious of the news. And I've always been interested in who's president and economic policy. My father was an economist and trying to follow the trends. Nuclear energy, I mean, the concept of clean energy has been haunting for the last few years. Everyone's talking Mm -hmm. about it since they've acknowledged climate change since, let's say, the 2000 period. And certainly Al Gore's film brought attention to it in 2006. So it's scary. It's uh, even if you don't accept climate change and some people don't. How... What is the best way to utilize energy in our country? And that could be conservation conscious. And in that regard, when you do the research and you go around and you talk to the scientists, people who know, who don't just have opinions, but who know, it comes out that nuclear energy is a must, is a must. 
what made you do that? You said most of your films uh, unpack a lie. You say undiscovered lies that people won't admit, I think, in an interview. Explain the lie that got you motivated to do an entire documentary, a two hour, almost two-hour documentary. Well, I didn't, see, I didn't see it as a lie when I started. It was simply to deal with this issue of where are we going. I mean, everyone was talking about... Uh, taking pro-nuclear, anti-nuclear positions, it's it's tedious to listen to these arguments because it's a what if, what if, what if kind of question mark. Uh, we want to move beyond that and try to solve the problem. So when I read this book called A Bright Future by written by Josh Goldstein, who was a, a professor of international relations and a nuclear engineer scientist from Sweden called Stefan Svist. They laid out in a very simple book, it was very clear, it's very dry and hard to read, but it's clear that we're going to need a lot of nuclear energy in the next 30 years to meet the standards of what the IPCC calls 2050 is going to be kind of a break point when the earth is going to no longer going to be able to recover from warming and it will just keep warming itself. Let's say that's true, but even if it were not true, I would still be saying, and this book would still be saying we need nuclear energy sure. and we had it. it sure. I, I, I guess what I want to get to it is like, why this? There's, there's crises all over the world, including misinformation, political partisanship. Why, what, what prompted you to come to this? To this, you read a book. You read a book that you liked, right? Oh, be, There's because, lots of books. Because I'm scared. I'm scared for the world. I'm, mm -hmm. I have children. Uh, hopefully, I'll have grandchildren. Uh, what's my daughter and son going to face? It's the prospect of the Earth getting worse is what scares me. The Earth should be getting better because we know we know more and more and more, and we have more tools to, to help us. And we're not. It's not getting better. The, the carbon dioxide poisoning in the air, along with the methane poison, gas poisoning in the air, is, is growing. So this, this compelled you to make an argument that the answer is, uh, the solution is nuclear energy. So I want you to explain why you think nuclear is the answer and compare it to solar, wind, and other forms of renewable energy that we've been sold on. Because it's, well, it's, you can get more out of it, more bang for yeah. your buck. Well, because so nuclear operates 24-7. I mean, it's basically mm -hmm. a capacity of about 90% plus. It's always going night and day. Once it's built, it's expensive. Once it's built, it, the maintenance is very smooth. And, and it runs and it runs. And we, we take it for granted. And we took it for granted in our country. And uh, we, never, we never really kind of realized it. We looked to one accident, which was the Chernobyl which terrified the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and Three Mile Island. I understand Island. why, but that one accident became the basis for closing up uh, nuclear plants, not only in Germany, but even in the United States, they're closing them early. And the others, the others, solar, wind, are not, and uh, renewables are not good enough. They're too small, is, is the they're argument. They're too small on the scale that we need. We need continent mm -hmm. size. Plus, it takes up a lot of land. You know, if, in Germany, for example, they put up uh, solar panels in a huge solar park, 400, almost 500,000 panels reflecting the sun. Those panels produced about one-tenth the electricity that nuclear produced on five times the size of the land. And right. the same is kind of true about turbines, too, because they take a lot of space. Mm -hmm. And but, it depends you know, on the wind. if we can do it, we should do everything we can, everything we can. Um I want to talk about why we're not using it. You make a case at the beginning of the documentary about this quite um, clear, and it's largely around uh, safety and fear of accidents, essentially. Um, you yourself said you used to be afraid of nuclear energy. What convinced you that it was safe? Because a lot of our fears come from 
the nuclear bomb, right? Presumably. Exactly. Versus, versus well, so we equate those, the two. Nuclear bomb and nuclear energy have been conflated into one monster. And the truth is the nuclear bomb is enriched with plutonium mm -hmm. and it makes it highly radioactive and it's dangerous. It happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which we set off, and people died of, of poisoning, radioactive poisoning. But nuclear energy was made in a much lower level uh, way. Uh, the enrichment process is monitored highly by the IAEA, International Atomic Energy Commission. They, these things, are, these plants are very, very safe. They're built along these lines of very strictly. In the United States, too strictly. You might argue that there should have been more accidents because, as in any in new industry, chemicals, uh, gas, oil, pipelines, there's, got, we've, we, there's a process of learning. Uh, I think they did a pretty damn good job. They had one accident in the United States. It was at uh, Three Mile Island. Right. And nobody died. The containment structure worked at Three Mile Island, and yet the so panic was So you're saying it in, became demonized in this, you know, a nuclear bomb. It was demonized, bomb. yeah, so, by, know, that, by that film by Jane Fonda. Was, and I admire Jane very much for her Vietnam stand, as you know. Yeah. But it, it made hysterical the... Uh, the it, the concept grew that if this thing blows up, it's going to be a I'm nuclear curious, explosion. Have, have, have you heard from Jane Fonda on this? No, I haven't. But no. uh, I wish she would to look at it. I yeah. probably, it's very hard to go back on your thinking and change yeah. your mind, but you have to listen to facts. So, so what changed your mind? You said you were in facts. that camp. You were in, in that camp. Yeah, but I wasn't. I, I assumed that people knew what they were talking about. But the truth is that the nuclear industry never really had a lobbying. They never had... You know what Wyoming has with coal, coal or Texas has with oil. They didn't have a, a, a constituency, and no scientist was. There was no Einstein around, or I guess, or Marie Curie who found uh, radium to explain it to the people so that they would understand it. And the media got involved. And let's be honest, they love hysteria. They love sensationalism. When you can talk about an explosion in your backyard of the size of a nuclear bomb, it's, it's going to make the news. But mm -hmm. that's not the case. All right, let's get, we'll get to the media in a second. But let's play a clip from the documentary to start. This is President Eisenhower sharing his vision for nuclear energy in a speech to the UN in 1953, followed by your voiceover. Let's play that. This greatest of destructive forces can be developed into a great boom for the benefit of all mankind. Experts would be mobilized to apply atomic energy to the needs of agriculture, medicine, and other peaceful activities. A special purpose would be to provide abundant electrical energy in the power-starved areas of the world. The United States pledges before you to devote its entire heart and mind to find the way by which the miraculous inventiveness of man shall not be dedicated to his death, but consecrated to his life. The entire assembly of delegates from around the world, including the Soviet Union, responded with warm and sustained applause. Okay, we're not exactly living in this nuclear-powered utopia, he promised. Um, you argue a few things are to blame. Let's do a lightning round of some of these things you say have gotten in the way. Let's start with big oil and economic interests here. How did they change things? Well, as we explained in the film, they knew that this was a threat to their livelihood and their profits. And the Rockefeller Foundation put out a study in 1956, which put its thumb on the scale, and 
their scientists that were this paid the for oil by family. the Rockefeller came out with this conclusion that any amount of radiation is harmful to the human body. This is a study that went right to the New York Times uh, front page. Uh, the publisher of the Times was incidentally, on the board of the Rockefeller Foundation. What happened is that that report is, is fraudulent, and it has been denied by science. It's been discredited. Low-level radiation exists all over the world. It's, it's with us. It's cosmic rays bombard the Earth, the sun. We are exposed to radiation, low-level radiation, all day long. And people at high levels of altitude or in airliners mm -hmm. are more exposed to it and so forth and so on. But when you have that kind of news and then it, it sticks, it sticks around. So that perception was there from almost the beginning, from 1956. So they created this lie. They created a lie, bad PR. They put bad PR against it by saying you could die. Well, there's low-level radiation and there's high-level radiation. Mm -hmm. High-level radiation is dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, the bomb stuff is high-level radiation because it's mm -hmm. enriched. The uh, nuclear plant radiation is low level. So big oil, big oil tried to scare people into thinking well, they could did. be mutated. They, they did. And also they went on in time, and now they have declared themselves the perfect partner for renewables. You see why? Because we know that renewables, sun and, and wind, do not work all the time. So what's the backup? It's immediately gas. Coal or gas. Okay, so you talk about the co-opting of environmental groups, about of Big Oil's anti-nuclear agenda, that they shifted initially. The Sierra Club was yeah. pro-nuclear energy and then became anti, including the Friends of the Earth, who was funded by uh, Big Oil. Talk about that. We, it's very hard to uh, follow the money because it's always uh, anonymously given. But t definitely, uh, Rod Adams in the film tells the story of the uh, ARCO investment in Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth was one of the first anti-nuclear uh, environmental groups around 1970. But the chief of ARCO, oil gas, wrote the first check for $200,000 to Friends of the Earth. They got into the business of... Uh, protesting nuclear energy. Not all the environmental groups did at first, but certainly a lot of them did. Greenpeace followed in 1970. Mm -hmm. Greenpeace. And, and so because why? Because oil was controlling them? I think that's hard to believe. But that they, they may have gotten their initial funding from that. But what happened yeah. to these groups Well, who knows what, so the fun, what funding continued? We don't know where the funds come from. But the point is, it, even if it's not a conspiracy, it's business as usual, which is the oil companies don't want to have competition from from, from uh, nuclear. Okay. Nuclear. So you talk about the, the uh, we've talked about the conflation of nuclear energy and nuclear war. Um, and you, you point a finger at Hollywood for fear mongering. Uh, how do the films and TVs stoke the fear? Obviously, you've got Godzilla that came out after the bomb, you know, duck and cover. Um, and then the China syndrome, um, all kinds of movies. There's been one movie after the next. Yeah. You don't forget uh, Silkwood, which is Silkwood. wonderfully filmed with Meryl Streep. All these people are, film business has been horrible to the nuclear industry. We had all the horror films of the 50s when I was growing up. Uh, you know, everything was radioactive. There was always the reason for two heads, monsters mm -hmm. that existed, fish that came out of the sea. Uh, everything that was horrible came from radiation. On top of that, you had this uh, HBO series about Chernobyl, which was extremely successful around the world. So why is Hollywood doing this? The fear, this because fear, they don't know, fear because they don't know, and it makes you know, it makes for easy. It's an easy, uh, what do they call it? It's a low-hanging fruit. Can you imagine there being a movie? Nuclear energy is great. I, they, yeah, I could, but you, well, you just be, made it. But. I had to make it as a documentary because it's very difficult to. 
you know, I, I, at one point we played, uh, Josh and I played with the idea of doing a scenario about a female scientist because that was popular, and a female scientist saving the world by Through her courage energy. and so forth. But, you know, that becomes kind of melodramatic. It's mm -hmm. not really a one-person issue. It's really a global issue. It can't be solved by the United States or one side. It's going to be solved by a consensus right. in the but, world. But the popular idea is that nuclear energy is dangerous, is that no matter what, it's more dangerous than anything was else. Bad, yeah. was bad. So um, there are justified fears. We've had, as you said, Chernobyl was the worst one. The UN estimates 4,000 deaths related to radiation exposure. Um, but you and Mr. Goldstein fear it's it, that it's been blown out of proportion. Totally. Compared to Bhopal, the, the deaths at Bhopal. At, Which is in, chemical. Right, 1980. Was it four? The, uh, mm -hmm. And then in 1975, we had the, the, the uh, hydropower dam in China. 250,000 people died. So, I mean, there are accidents in any industry. Mm -hmm. The airplane industry had accidents, and they were very dramatic. Nothing compared to what the car industry was turning out, and as Ralph Nader pointed out. the uh, In other words, what's scary... And what's dangerous are two different things. Nuclear energy is scary, but compared to uh, the more mundane uh, oil, gas, coal, nothing compared to it. So this uh, Fukushima it. was another one, an earthquake and a tsunami hit Japan, caused a nuclear disaster, an active power plant. As you point out, natural disasters are going to get more powerful and plentiful. Uh, so should we be more, not less concerned about future Fukushimas? Or you think every, every energy source is at risk? It's funny that you call, everyone says Fukushima is a nuclear disaster. It isn't. It was a tsunami disaster that, as we had in mm -hmm. the South Pacific. That plant was badly, had a low seawall and it was flooded. The generators were flooded. The seawall was penetrated, but the containment structure held. There was a radiation leak, but again, realize it's low-level radiation. People were checked out. Nobody died from radiation poisoning. People died from mismanagement, hospitalization. Hospitals were emptied and they rushed it. But the Japanese government panicked mm -hmm. and, and closed it down for quite a few years. So it's just, it's kind of a, it's a contagion of fear. So it would be like closing down planes if there was one plane yeah, crash. Yeah, like closing down planes or banning knives. I mean, what's a knife for? A knife is a wonderful instrument. We use it to, for hundreds of things, but it can also kill people. All right, but you, you just said something which is, I think a lot of people would would get their back up. Or you, and Goldstein said in an interview, and you just said it, you think that it's better for nuclear if there were more accidents. Well, I, I, that's a form of saying, yes, we'd get more used to it because people get spoiled. They want zero tolerance. Zero mm -hmm. tolerance is, in any industry is almost impossible. So but you're the, saying accidents normalize the tech, in other words. Accidents normalize. Yes, they do. And, uh, I mean, think about the waste of, from nuclear compared to, compared right. to ammonia. A lot of fear agriculture, compared to arsenic, compared mm -hmm. to lead, compared to mercury, which is just thrown into our landscape. So that radioactive waste is safer than Much safer all than the other yeah. things that come out of oil, gas, and then they talk about solar panels. They talk about 100,000 years from now. Okay, <laughs> well, right? But, you know, even so, I, it, 
it decays. It decays to almost nothing. Radioactive waste doesn't move. It's, uh, it's been over-glamorized and over-sensationalized, and people can always say, what if, what if? But at a certain point, you've got to say, look, we got to, we got to take the what if. Zero tolerance. It's, it's not going to happen. we got to build. All right. Well, let's talk about that, the cost. Uh, plants are getting built across the U.S., are costing twice as much as their budgets promise, while other countries have been able to do it cheaper. South Korea has actually lowered its costs. Talk about how we get costs down, specifically the rule of SMRs, which are small modular reactors, which move well, around. That is, that is the American way. We, we're we building uh, innovative companies, private mm-hmm. companies, with mm-hmm. the support of the DOE, the D- Department of Energy, exploring the small modular reactors. Uh, Bill Gates has invested a lot of money. It looks very mm-hmm. promising on uh, what they call a, a natrium. Uh, natrium is a salt water reactor. It, it, mm-hmm. uh, don't ask me to explain all the details. I'm not a scientist, but it looks good. Would you have one in your home when they get small absolutely, enough? Absolutely, in a you second. Had, so powered by nuclear energy. Interestingly, I had a discussion with Bill Gates about this, who is a big investor in, in nuclear yeah. uh, technology, um, which, of course, will add to the conspiracy theories around Bill Gates. Um, uh, and the chips and the vaccines and everything else. But um, so it requires startups to be doing this, presumably, if that's the case, innovation in nuclear energy. Well, we make the point that startups are an alternative to uh, General Electric because General Electric builds on a big scale. And as it was explained in the film, their nuclear division is a small part of their overall business. They make turbines, uh, they make uh, 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 drilling equipment. They're, it's a huge company. So their motivation to, uh, to do nuclear is limited. But uh, the others, so but there's the small companies that do this full time. That, that this is their motive there to mm-hmm. begin with. That's the companies that hopefully will make a breakthrough in America. Yeah. Also, Sam Altman, who is the head of ChatGPT, uh, yeah. <laughs> also has a big fusion. Uh, a big. He's he's working. Yeah, on, fusion his, is also for the future, but not now. That's his great uh, interest. Um, you you do explore France as a kind of nuclear energy gold standard. Seventy percent of the country gets its energy from nuclear, but there's serious costs and climate issues. Last year, half of France plants were offline for repairs. Unusually high temperatures put more pressure on the plant's cooling systems. The state-funded nuclear power operator EDF is billions of dollars in debt. So is France really the shining example? Yes, it is. It's a wonderful example, actually, because it's been working for 50 years. They built 57 reactors, and they've been delivering. And France had very low electricity costs, and they had very little CO2. But, you know, the French system has to be repaired because it's been in business for 50 years at a low price. Mm -hmm. But there are pipes and corrosion and so forth and so on, but that's part of the business. So what they did should be the map. What they did Absolutely. for today. And Russia, okay. too. Russia, too, built, uh, has 20% of its electricity coming from nuclear. And they have built the, some of the finest uh, reactors uh, ever seen. They have this new fast breeder, which we saw at Belyarsk in the Ural Mountains in Although, the center of Russia. That, that fast breeder uses its own waste. Right, uh, I got that. Of course, it's paid for by their gas and gas and oil uh, revenues. Well, no, it's paid for by the state. That comes yeah. part of their. But yeah. the gas is no good. Russia is is definitely. It's sad that they do it, but China is the one that's building the most nuclear right now. Mm-hmm. They are investing, according to what I read, four hundred forty billion dollars into building a hundred twenty-five or so new reactors. They already have fifty some. So uh, by they, need, they, two, they've th- promised to get to zero emissions. Two thousand. Well, that's one thing. Two thousand thirty-eight. They will have like all these reactors in place, and they'll be building more. 
they have promised, the President Xi has promised to go to a zero emission uh, well, by 2060. Okay. Right. So we're not later. in China. We're not in Russia. We're not in France. In the U.S., how do you get politicians behind the nuclear vision in a bipartisan way? Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez recently went to visit the site of the Fukushima power plant and said she was there to neither fearmonger nor sugarcoat. So how do you get people in this country to be bipartisan about nuclear, especially when there's oil and gas interests and coal interests? Uh, Joe Manchin just got it dropped into the debt ceiling bill, a coal plant. Listen, I, I acknowledge it's a huge problem to get people to change their ways, but the worst necessity is a mother of invention. The worse it gets, people will see. They're going to, they're, they know that it's, they, they know in their hearts that oil and gas are not the solution. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it, as the planet chokes, uh, there will there has to be change, and people will realize maybe too late, and they'll be building nuclear as fast as they can by 2040 or even 2035. But as I said to you earlier, the nuclear business does not have a constituency. They're not very good at promoting themselves. I, I talked to these people at Idaho Lab. They mm -hmm. all want to make the next solution, but they don't have a, a clue as to how to advertise it, like the oil people do or the coal people do. Right, right. Movies. M movies can help. <laughs> the, the, let me ask you this. I think it's a natural question. No nuclear company paid or invested in this no. movie. No, this was done privately. It was privately. participant. This was done Participant part helped us a lot. Jeff Scola was, uh, produced The Inconvenient Truth, mm -hmm. and he was anti-nuclear. Uh, we talked, and uh, two, three years ago, he changed. He mm -hmm. read everything he could on nuclear. He's a very bright man, mm -hmm. much more scientific than I am, and he's very happy with this film and wants it to uh, penetrate, doing everything he can to help us. Okay, so you end the documentary on an optimistic note about the pace of technological innovation you've witnessed in our lifetime. Why so optimistic? You know, you're very leaning into entrepreneurship. Um, it's a bit of a love letter to the nuclear. Well, uh, to nuclear you could say energy. that at the ending. I, I want you know. All I've seen in the last few years is dystopian stuff. The films, mm -hmm. reading materials. It's depressing. Uh, everyone. I don't understand why the movie business is just always about the death and destruction. I guess that makes money. But yeah. I really would like to see a change and hope given to the future. When this book I found, uh, Bright Future, is is about hope and mm -hmm. about changing the way we're doing our energy now. It's doable. That's what's frustrating so, you about know, it's kind of, it's so It's fascinating because a lot of your movies are dystopian, whether it's Wall Street. You or know, dystopian. Wall Street. You, you know, you, you know you Natural argue. Born Killers really left me, was a bummer, was a fucking bummer, Oliver, I have to tell you. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, but I'm saying, what, what shifted you to utopian and it's nuclear that does this? Because a lot of your films are darker, I would say. If, uh, I don't think they're like dances in the park. I don't feel... No, I'm not known yeah. for a Disney yeah, approach. Yeah, yeah, I don't to, see to, to, uh, Frozen but, uh, here. Believe Although me, I've always movie. been an optimist because uh, you, you, sometimes you go to the darker places because you can handle it. You can, you can take it. You don't get depressed, but you can come out the other end and you're better for it. Mm -hmm. And that's a, it's a truth about human existence. Suffering sometimes makes us wiser and better people. So... The same thing applies in making, creating films like this. You, uh, somehow I have an innate optimism. Perhaps it comes from my mother. My father was a pessimist, actually, more than my mother. But my mother was really a believer in human humanity. And I repeat that at the end of the movie because scientists, Marie Curie, one of the greatest 
brought us the discovery of uranium and what it could do. And Einstein and people and, uh, and even Eisenhower, as dark as it could get during the Cold War, he was still hoping that we could nuclearize our society. And we were close to doing that. I wish we had built more, but uh, I'm an optimist. I'm All an right, optimist. You're, you're an optimist. Support for this show comes from Virgin Atlantic. Travel can be stressful. I don't think that's a controversial take. Sure, we all love taking a vacation and that moment we finally get a chance to relax, but we're always so focused on the destination that the journey just feels like a means to an end. Well, what if it wasn't? What if the time you spent getting there was just as enjoyable as the vacation itself? That's what Virgin Atlantic believes. That's why they offer loads of special extra touches that make your trip one to remember for all the best reasons. Picture this, you've made it to the airport, checked in your bags, and finally have a moment to settle in before takeoff. If you're flying upper class, you could be putting your feet up in a Virgin Atlantic clubhouse at London Heathrow with food made fresh to order and champagne delivered straight to your table with a tap of a QR code. I mean, it's rude not to, right? Once you're in the air, the experience continues with deliciously different dining, seriously comfy seats, and the best crew in the sky by miles. Check out virginatlantic.com for your next trip and see the world differently. Support for this show comes from the Harvard Business Review. I made a career out of taking to task some of the tech industry's biggest players. And honestly, some of these guys, and they're all guys, really had no clue what they were doing and they could probably have benefited from some of the resources available at Harvard Business Review. Harvard Business Review is a top source for smart management thinkers. Cultivated by some of the greatest minds in business, the Harvard Business Review is a trove of rigorous insight and best practices. It's more than just a flagship magazine, too. You can find the same level of expertise on hbr.org, and for just $10 a month, a subscription unlocks unlimited access to a variety of resources like hundreds of articles, podcasts, newsletters, case studies, and so much more. I use HBR all the time to look up all kinds of cases, and not just in tech, and also listen to their podcasts, I look at their newsletters, and I really, 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 most of all, like the articles, which have a different perspective that I might have to give me ideas. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code CARA right now to get 10% off your subscription. Again, to save 10% off your HBR subscription, go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code CARA. So one of the one of the things you do talk about is something that is never going to happen at this moment in time, which is you said there's no reason for the United States and Russia not to be partners on nuclear. But realistically, any partnership seems far fetched. Um, is nuclear still possible on the scale you envision without the U.S., Russia, and China working together? Do you see? It yes, seems it's that, possible. Like, well, sure, but right now, given the world, the state of well, world affairs, let's say it's not realistic now because of the politics. And but there's no reason why. We've, we we were the enemies of Russia when I was a boy. There was constant anti-Russian propaganda, and they changed suddenly when Ronald Reagan uh, actually uh, 
talked to the enemy and had this relationship with Mr. Gorbachev, and it resulted in a tremendous period of cooperation. Even before that, there was cooperation in the space. Kennedy, mm -hmm. John Kennedy, who was proponent of nuclear power, uh, spoke of that partnership in his great peace speech in 1963. We should recognize the the sacrifice of the Soviet Union in World War II and we have to, we have to, what they call coexistence, which you don't ever hear about these days, but mm -hmm. the concept of coexistence was very important to the planet. And he spoke about that. And that's unfortunately been forgotten. <laughs> well, it's another time. There is, there's obviously incredible um, tension with China right now, but yes. more so with Russia. And you were making the Edward Snowden film. I know you spent a lot of time in Russia and met Vladimir Putin. Um, then you made a four-hour TV series called The Putin Interviews, which yeah. you released in 2017 on Showtime. You spent 22 hours interviewing Putin. Um, yeah. Talk a little bit about this, because I think he's not the world's um, most popular person right now. Yeah, the four-hour documentary, uh, the Putin interview, speaks for itself, and I really, there's nothing to defend, and it's just a series of questions. I got to know him through the Snowden, because mm -hmm. I was curious about how Snowden got into Russia, and he gave, he tells the whole story. How did in, you meet Putin? Did you That just way. Call, uh, that I way. met him as a result. I was in Moscow shooting the end of the film, and... Uh, we shot some stuff with him at the end of the film. If you saw Snowden, you'd know what I'm talking about. Sure, yeah, I did. So who introduced you? It was somebody, uh, it, there are people around him. I mean, it, it, they know they knew I was in Russia because I got permission. So I met him in very, in, at a theater, actually. It was in the backstage. And he explained to me very rationally the story, that, as he saw it, of the Snowden affair, which is fascinating to hear on film. It's mm -hmm. in the Putin interviews. Uh, Although and, Snowden wasn't a fan of his. He told me he was not a fan of Putin uh, at the time when I well, interviewed him. Snowden was trying to get back into the United States, too, because mm -hmm. Snowden didn't consider himself, and he's not a traitor. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, I, told it, me it's that been too. a perception of him as such. So there's a lot of misconceptions here. Anyway, uh, yes, despite all the criticism, I went ahead and I did, we ended up doing a 20-some hours. With, I spent 30 hours with a man over two and a half years. Right. And he gave me, he enlightened me a lot. I mean, he told me the whole Ukraine story from his point of view, which is crucial to know for Americans. And he told me about many other things, about dealing with the George Bush administration. He's been in office 20 years. He's seen a lot. He's Certainly. A, he, and he's a world statesman. Okay. A lot of people, I would say a lot of people think not so. But how did you get the access to him? Did you have to promise anything? Or No, I, I, I didn't I'm, promise a thing, and he didn't touch okay. a thing. And it was We had complete freedom in editing. Mm -hmm. well, I think the first meeting led to the second meeting. In other words, he saw that I was serious about these questions, and I wanted to know. And mm -hmm. I was coming from at it from, call it more of a Western viewpoint, because I didn't understand some of the Russian thinking. So I learned a lot in those two years, two and a half years, and I saw the this, the world situation getting worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. So it's a strange thing, you know, obviously a lot of tension. And right. I took a lot of heat for the interviews, but I, yes. I, I maintain that they're objective. So, so there were some tough moments in that Putin interview, including uh, pushing back and forth on elections. He was denying hacking U.S. elections. That is indeed a lie. That's the correct. Russians have. Um, well, we and, don't know that. Please. Well, we do. I, 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 this area I do know about. Um, but in any case, when you aired these, were you worried about the pushback that you got? Was that a worry for you? And have you changed it, your opinion since? Changed my opinion of him? Of him. Mm-hmm. No, no. I've read all the criticisms. I've been reading them off and on since 2002. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's been criticized heavily 
mm-hmm. in the United States for, and accused of many crimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the 2007 meeting in Munich certainly is, an, is a key point to look at again. And you can see the United States reaction to his same proposals that he was making proposals for peace and an understanding of the Russian red lines. Mm-hmm. And, and you see John McCain smirking as he speaks. So you, you get a lack of respect. And I think you feel that throughout mm-hmm. that conference. And you f- and it goes on and on and on. And it's a shame because I think that's part of the problem. We, we just don't have respect for the Russian, special, for Rus- Russian interests in this time. Mm-hmm. We don't understand them. We're, we're operating blindly Blindly, and I think it's a very dangerous situation. Has your perspective changed since the invasion of Ukraine? I understand Ukraine in another way because I understand the origins of the war, and I see them as a civil war between Russian ethnics in, and uh, Ukrainians. And Ukrainians, okay. Um, and do you get a great deal of flack for that, given the, the support for Ukraine in this I don't, country? I don't. Uh, listen, I haven't talked much about it. I'm doing nuclear energy. And I'm trying to push this through. It's it's distracting as a Side issue. Okay. So um, so when you, um, let, let me ask you about Hollywood then. You told my colleague Olivia Nutzi at Vulture that movie making these days is money wasted. Why is that? I don't know if, I don't know the context of that, but I would say they spent an enormous amount of money on marketing and advertising and not on making. And, and, the, and actually the making is very inflated now. I mean, the budgets are the the budgets that I knew, I made films realistically, and the budgets were much tighter than they are now. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me it's more of a event. Uh, it's like Westinghouse building a nuclear reactor mm-hmm. <laughs> or uh, General Electric. It becomes extremely expensive by the time you finish. It goes over budget. It goes delayed. So, so in that context, when you look at it, you've had decades of being a prominent writer and director. We're in the middle of a strike. Um, you, one of the things you talked about is there's no original ideas anymore. Um, how do you look at Hollywood overall? Listen, I, 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 made, my, I made 20 feature films and 10 mm-hmm. documentaries. I've achieved, uh, you know, as I'm happy with what I've achieved. But in any case, I'm... I'm, I'm making another documentary. It's almost done now. It's on Lula, Lula of Brazil. Brazil, right. Yeah, Lula mm-hmm. of Brazil. We interviewed him. I've known him off and on since early 2000 in my earlier documentary, South of the Border. Uh, so I'm staying active and interested in the world. But when you look at Hollywood overall as someone who's been there, uh, you know, you have AI coming around. You've got all of all these things happening. How do you look at the industry now? Where is it, it from your perspective? I'm a bit old-fashioned in that way. I regard story as the essence, and I regard, and I think we need a soul to tell a story. And I think uh, artificial intelligence, despite all its advantages, is not does not have a soul. Mm-hmm. And Hollywood, the industry in general, are you worried for well, it? That's a good question. Sometimes people say there's no soul in Hollywood because it's a yeah, pretty, ruth, pretty ruthless place. But I, yeah. if you believe in a soul, you, you keep doing it. You, not, you don't change your way. Uh, if someone wants to believe in me. I, Glad to make a film that I believe in. Okay, my last question. You've been interested in conspiracy theories your whole career. Some might even say your films, some of them um, are are around conspiratorial thinking. How do you feel about the mainstreaming of conspiratorial thinking that's happened in this country? There's been a surge. It's inevitable. I don't have to go any further than uh, Hillary Clinton. I mean, you, they talk about the nefariousness of my uh, JFK and how it hurts the country, but it doesn't hurt the country. It's a search for truth, and it's important that we get there. If uh, 
that we have to get past the Warren Commission because it's so juvenile. Hillary was, with all her people, was saying that Donald Trump was an agent, essentially, of the Russian government. And that went around very quickly after he won the election. I thought she was a sore loser. And I think it hurt his presidency. No matter what you think about Trump and what he did, and I'm not making that judgment, he still did not get a chance to really be the president because he was so reviled off the top from a phony investigation that was proven, the Mueller report, the Durham report, with, there was nothing to it. And yet it went around this country for three years. So that is a conspiracy. And it's conspiratorial thinking, very dangerous, very dangerous and without well, foundation. he's got some with the election fraud and everything else. Yes, that's later. But that's, that's I'm starting where it became very obvious that conspiratorial thinking is taking over in this country in that 2016 election. But who who do, who is to blame for that in in the in the overtaking of conspiracy theories in our national psyche? Well, you know, I've lived from 1946 to now, and I know I'll tell you this: uh, I grew up in a conspiracy about it was uh, Russia was behind everything. If you mm -hmm. remember McCarthy, they were all over the White House, they were all over the State Department, especially the State Department. They were in our system. They were teachers in schools. They were part of the military. There was all kinds of accusations that the communists were inside the United States, and that was a big fear. And it, where did that go? It was all nonsense. So there is from my very beginning in my life, we were buying this stuff. There's been obviously conspiratorial thinking in this country, and it, mm -hmm. it's part of the uh, American way. It's, I'm sure it goes for, further back than that. As late as the uh, 2000 election, I mean, I felt that night was a heartbreaking night for me. I felt it was a, a fraudulent uh, election in the sense that they stopped counting the votes, and it was very much an inside power move by Antonin Scalia, the justice of the Supreme Court, who put that final decision through, and James Baker and these people, I think that they, I don't believe Bush won that election. So I think from that point on, it that was a severe, severe break in traditional respect for the vote. And I, we've had problems ever since then. And so, you know, you're someone who definitely uh, dabbles in that area, but, but it becomes, it curdles, conspiratorial thinking curdles. I mean, you're talking about someone here in nuclear power, Bill Gates, who's subject of conspiracy theories about the vaccine, that he's putting chips in people's heads, et cetera, et cetera. It moves somewhere very ugly rather quickly. How do you keep writing about the truth, but not go right deeply into a conspiracy theory? Um, How do they stop shifting into something that is crazy, just crazy, just an untrue and damaging well, I've never ascribed to anything as, that I think is crazy. I'm not saying that Martians are here, although there's a lot of evidence of some stranger things are happening in the world. So you have to stay open in the world to change. It's a part of the science is always teaching us new ways of doing things. Nobody before Marie Curie or Albert Einstein was thinking that energy is matter. Uh, and how to get matter, how to get energy out of matter, and how to, how to build a, a horrible bomb, or how to use it for good reasons. I mean, this is all developing. So uh, you can't curdle. If you curdle, then you become a cynic. But we, part of our job as human beings is to is to find good things in life. I believe nuclear energy is a good thing. And if I can promote it to my fellow Americans, I'd be very proud, you know, as doing a good thing. So uh, I'm not sure that I'm curdled, but uh, certainly, I, I mean, I do believe Kennedy was killed, and I think he was killed for reasons, and I think he was the last 
good president we really had. And I think he was talking about coexistence, as I said earlier. And unfortunately, we're not there. We, we stayed in a militaristic state and built up this uh, military-industrial complex into megatons far bigger than uh, Mr. Eisenhower ever had an inkling of. Do you imagine that you'll do uh, another movie looking at this idea? I'd, like, or? I'd love to do one more film. Uh, I can't talk about it, but I'd love to do one more film because I have it in about me. What? About what? I can't what? talk to you about that because I okay. never talk about what I'm going to do. Uh, but I really love to do one more film, and maybe I'll be given the, the, the opportunity to do so. And if I made another movie, believe me, it would not be uh, uh, frivolous. It <laughs> would not, not. not a musical? Maybe it would. JFK, I tried to, the musical? I, tr I tried to do Evita for a long, yeah. long time. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's yeah. one of my long, I, I regret not being able to make a musical. A musical about nuclear power, perhaps? No, that's not, that's pushing it. That's pushing it. Um, let me ask you last question. Is there any movie you have made that you would make differently now, given your... Well, there's sections that I would probably do better, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm proud of the choices. All of the choices, all uh, yeah, the movies. all of them. I defend them all. All right, Mr. Stone, thank you so much. Thank you. What do we think his next film after Lula will be? Oh, that'll probably be a polemic, too. The love letter to Trump. Just kidding. He's not. He's not going to do that. He's misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't get a chance. I think he got a chance, Oliver. I'm sorry on that one. He took... Every bit of my control to not to say, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, <laughs> nice to meet you, insurrection. <laughs> no, he doesn't like Trump, but I think it'll be Hillary. Hillary, he really doesn't like. Come on, come on. The musical, Hillary, but the emails. Yes, she's a housewife from Chappaqua. That is what she is now, with zero power. And well, all of you, she is a housewife, including my mother. She's a housewife from Chappaqua. People are obsessed. But anyways, Hillary the Musical by Oliver Stone. <laughs> Funding thanks to Citizens United. Coming soon to a theater near you. He made a number of controversial statements there. He did. I think that it was on Putin, maybe world statesman, okay. But then mm -hmm. when he said it was a, civ a, quote, civil war between Russian ethnics and Ukrainians. Yeah. You know, he's very anti-war. And anyone who's anti-war, no matter what it is, he doesn't believe there's a just war. And some people do. But the misinformation stuff, he really just doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm sorry. I mean, he had his own very personal experience. I thought that was mm -hmm. very telling. Mm -hmm. It was one of those conversations that actually gets more thorough the deeper you kind of go into the conversation. And his upbringing, his his believing that he grew up in a time of a lie mm -hmm. has obviously shaped uh, so much look, of what I get he it. does. I get it. I mean, he's older than me, but the Nixon thing it was indelible, um, right. even at my young age. Um, was, the death of JFK, and I was was just born then, I think, that would be indelible to him. And the Vietnam War would be just impossible to remove from your psyche, just like today's kids, pandemic, right? Well, also Iraq War for my generation, right? Yep. Going into college around the time of the Iraq War that and, and seeing Colin Powell up there, that creates a certain um, questioning, scrutiny. Scrutiny is healthy. Conspiracizing is obviously not. That's correct. I very much appreciate his point that there are points of views outside the West. I don't, you know, I don't agree with his characterization of the war as a civil war. But no. I think there's a rush to kind of oversimplify the external world order. Yeah, the black and white is Asian. And you see it with the Saudi live case, right, where a bunch of people who have not spent any time in the Middle East would like to make all kinds of attributions, allegations. But, you know, the PGA was running a near monopoly. So there's also that and other views out yeah. there. Yeah. 
I get it. They also were not dismembering members of the press. Yeah, but that's not all Saudis. And the characterization of the government as all of them is, is problematic. Okay. All right. Yes, they're a monopoly. I just I think that he he cannot not black and white everything. And that's how his movies are. And subtlety is not Oliver Stone's greatest asset, I would not. say. He called that line of questioning on Russia and Putin a distraction. And and you we wanted you to push him more, but you kind of backed off at that point. Why? I just think it's pointless to argue with these people about Putin. There's a whole raft of people who've decided to to throw it in with Putin. And I just, you know, the, the facts are what they are. This guy, you can see right now, including in this latest situation, this is a, a rotten government. It's a government that's rotten from the inside and full of corruption and and worse. And what they're doing to Ukraine is just so obviously an invasion and I don't know what to say. I don't like if you can't at times when things happen change your mind mm-hmm. on things and like go, oh, okay, look, this is bad. Um, I just I don't know what to say to you. Yeah, I would have loved to have a few minutes to really push him on that because one of the interesting points he made was actually about changing minds, specifically Jeff Skoll, who funded the film, and the fact that Skoll had changed yeah. his mind about nuclear. I have too over the years. I absolutely have. I know a lot more, and it's very easy to get drawn into um, one or the other when, in fact, when you think about the damage fossil fuel has done, it's very clear we have to make safe nuclear energy, fusion, all the renewables, even though they don't keep up, and Stone is right in this, but we still have to lean into innovation and renewables, which are the best choice. Would you keep a small modular reactor in your home? I would. I would. Live next Mm -hmm. to a giant nuclear power plant with young children? I think they're not going to be giant. I think they're not going to be That's a way of saying no. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I don't I don't feel unsafe around nuclear reactors. There are times at that um, interview where he started toward this kind of giant oil wing conspiracy. Yeah, I think there's some merit mm-hmm. to it. I think if it, it, everything's not Chinatown, yeah. right? That was a movie about oil barons, etc. And so it makes a better film if it's very obvious villains and everything else. But I do think the oil industry has pushed away nu- uh, nuclear. I think they pushed away electric cars. I think they, there's no question. They, they are powerful people who like to keep their power, just like the tech industry Insidious. does. So Insidious. anyone with money and power wants to keep hold on to that power and then buy Congress, et cetera, et cetera. That, it's interesting that someone this old, Oliver Stone is like, I can't believe it. I'm like, oh, I, really? I found that <laughs> about him sweet. Not a lot. He's very, he's yeah. a bit curmudgeonly, yeah. that Oliver Stone. But I thought he was earnest in this one moment. The most earnest line he said was when he he said, movies can help. Movies can help. They can. I thought that was really sweet and true. And in a negative thing, I think the movies that they did around nuclear energy really did make people pause yeah. about it in a way that was that was propaganda too. And movies can also hurt, which is to say that JFK was probably an interesting film, but the fact that it is a gateway into conspiracies is also probably not mm-hmm. very much a yep. good thing. Anyways, for whatever he thinks, he is a talented creative. 100%. It's a really interesting interview and a great, you should watch yeah, the movie. Yeah, you should watch the movie. Watch all his movies, except Natural Born Killers, yeah. which apparently bums you out. It's a bummer. Uh, Carrie, you want to read us out? Yes. Today's show was produced by Naima Raza, Blakeney Schick, Christian Castro-Rossell, Megan Cunane, and Megan Burney. Special thanks to Mary Mathis. Our engineers are Fernando Aruda and Rick Kwan. Our theme music is by Trackademics. If you're already following the show, you get a small modular reactor next to your home, actually in your home. If not, you get to be an understudy in Evita the Musical, which will be filmed on an oil field. So go wherever you listen to podcasts, search for On with Kara Swisher and hit follow. Thanks for listening to On with Kara Swisher from New York Magazine, the Vox Media Podcast Network, and us. 